Welcome to Jesus Unmasked, an invitation to join a search for the living Christ in scripture and in our lives. I am Lindsay Paris Lopez, writer for the Raven Review, aspiring peacemaker and aspiring follower of Jesus. And I am Adam Erickson, writer at the Raven Review and pastor in the United Church of Christ. This is episode 25 for the third Sunday of Easter. In this episode, we discuss Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. In Jesus Unmasked, we seek to remove the masks of exclusive theology and violent cultural lenses that obscure the truth that Jesus is unconditional love. In the unmasked face of Jesus, there is hope, acceptance, and forgiveness that frees us from fear, that we may live into our fullest selves as reflections of God's love. We explore scripture through the new revised standard version of the Bible, and we use the common lectionary. Happy Easter, Lindsay. Happy Easter, Adam. Isn't it awesome that we just, our culture just assumes that Easter is one day a week, but no, resurrection happens, well, every day. Mm -hmm. But I was going to say for like 50 days, I think it is after Easter. Is that right? 50 days? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Up until Pentecost. So we're in Mm -hmm. a whole season of Easter, but really every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection, Easter Sunday, or should be. Yes, every every Sunday is Easter Sunday. Every Sunday is is the um is the assurance of the new life that we have in Christ. So, alleluia, the Lord is risen. Alleluia. Amen to that. <laughs> you know, in our church's Easter vigil, which of course we had to do virtually this year. So it was the first time I could actually attend the Easter vigil because I usually don't go out that late when the kids are with me. But anyway, for our church's Easter celebration at the vigil, we all rang out our our instruments, our bells. Some of us had little drums and stuff. And and someone in our church had a cowbell that apparently has been making its appearance at the vigil for years. And so now after the alleluias, we shout more cowbell. That's going to be our (laughs) tradition now. (laughs) More cowbell. That's awesome. I love it. Bring that out. Alleluia, more cowbell. Yes, Yes, that's fantastic. Good stuff. Well, today we've got a a resurrection story. Uh, Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Mm Mm-hmm. This is a pretty powerful story. It's like this is the interpretive principle of the entire whole of Scripture. As such, I think it's probably the most underrated passage in at least the Gospels, if not all of the entire Bible. Yeah, probably so. I mean, on the surface, it's some guys taking a walk, but it's more than that. So I'll go ahead and read it. Yeah, okay. Now, on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. When they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, 
Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place in these days? He asked them, what things? They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who is a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they came back, did not find his body there. They came back and told us they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of them who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. A lot of really great stuff going on in this passage. Uh, the disciples are still in this very overwhelming sense of grief about what's just happened to Jesus. Definitely, they're they're in grief and they're in they're in a state of defeat. Everything has just completely crashed down around them, and they're taking a long walk. I don't know if maybe they stayed in bed for a day or so and are just now pulling themselves together because I can just imagine them just kind of so grief stricken they can't even move at first. Yeah. And then this stranger comes and appears before them and it's apparently Jesus, but they don't recognize him. I know. I, I find this. It, it's really funny because here they're approached by Jesus. They don't recognize him. And again, that's because of their state of grief. And I mean, who really would recognize someone who came back from the dead? Your mind would tell you all sorts of things that, and and I don't even think you would consciously process, oh, this looks like so-and-so. It would just be, there would just be this subconscious process going on of, it can't possibly be him. He's dead. And 
like the front of your brain wouldn't even entertain such a thought. It's very understandable that they don't recognize him. Not only is it just not possible for someone to come back from the dead, but like I said, their whole worldview, everything that they had been working toward is just completely gone. Yeah. So Jesus being back, I'm sure, would be the last thing to possibly come to their minds. And yet it's funny because it is Jesus and he comes up to them and says, what are you talking about? And they treat him like the outsider, like the stranger, like, are you the only one who doesn't know? You know they're so sure of themselves. And they're treating him as if he's just has completely been living under a rock, which he has, which is kind of funny. But they say all these things to him and his response is, you fools. And it's mm-hmm. just kind of hilarious. And yet, you know, even as I laugh at them, I think I wouldn't have been any better, you know. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. So Jesus calls them fools, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he goes on to say how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary for the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? That's a really weird mind shift that this stranger is asking them to make and asks all of us to make. But it's what Jesus has been basically telling them throughout his three years of ministry. We generally think the Messiah, the king, right, is the one who isn't going to suffer, but is going to make our enemies suffer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's The Messiah is the one who is supposed to lead us. The king, the political leader, is supposed to lead us in making our enemies suffer and defeating them. And here Jesus continues this radical mind shift of... No, you have it backwards. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. real political leader is going is not going to inflict violence upon our enemies, but is going to suffer that violence to show you a better way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they had followed him while he cured the while he cured the lepers and healed the blind and made the lame walk. And I'm sure they were thinking, yeah, this is all nice and well and good. And it's it's great that that you're doing this because that's one side of love that we want for ourselves and for our loved ones. But the other side is we want our enemies defeated. And they say we had thought he would be the one to redeem Israel. All of that that he did, you know, healing the suffering and feeding the hungry and welcoming the marginalized, they hadn't seen that in itself as the work of redemption yet. They were still expecting some kind of grand battle. They were still expecting, yeah, this is nice, but at some point when we build up enough supporters, When we've brought them all to our side because we fed all these hungry ones, they're going to join our army and we're going to go in and we're going to defeat Rome. It's like they're thinking now, we really thought he was the one, but I guess we were wrong. And they're waiting around for someone else, probably wondering if it'll happen in their lifetimes, probably wondering if they'll be up for it again. And Jesus suddenly says, you've got it all wrong. 
And it's got to be a shock because they're like, well, no, we were with this guy and we saw it ourselves and there's no one more in the loop than us. And they still got it all wrong. Yes. And then Jesus, it says that Jesus, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, interpreted to them the things about himself in all of scripture. Such a fascinating and important phrase because these are first century Jews. They, they're probably going to know the Bible pretty well. They're going to know the stories. They're going to know the, the important parts of it. Uh, and so it's not their knowledge about the Bible that is probably lacking. It's their interpretive lens that's lacking. So mm-hmm. Jesus interprets for them all of scripture that is about himself. Mm-hmm. Beginning yeah. with Moses and the prophets. And he says, he says, this is all pointing to the, basically to what the Messiah was going to do, which was to suffer and to die, which is again, like, how do you see that beginning with Moses and the prophets? Where do we see that in there? It's a it's a tough thing to see, except for, I think, that the prophets are the ones who often end up suffering and are threatened with violence because they keep confronting the powers and principalities of the world. Right. Even mm-hmm. Moses does this when Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh keeps threatening them with more and more violence. Mm-hmm. And this is seems to be the pattern of the prophets that happen and that Jesus is taking upon himself in this prophetic lens that God is not here to protect you from the mm-hmm. powers of oppression and violence, but maybe calling you to enter into it in order to try to transform it. Yeah. Yeah. And that is so hard when you think you know everything, when you've been seeing it (laughs) your whole life, you know, and you've been studying it your whole life. And suddenly, who is this stranger who apparently didn't even know about Jesus of Nazareth being killed on a cross, you know, in their minds, to tell them everything about, well, Jesus? Who is this guy? And I mean, that's part of the story. That's part of the new light that shines on us is that these revelations are going to come from the sources that we've never thought to even listen to. And there, there's a taste of that right, right in the beginning in this gospel. Some women, some crazy women be tripping. And, you know, I don't mm-hmm. say that. That's that doesn't come naturally to me. But it's that's <laughs> kind of the attitude, you know. <laughs> That, oh, you know, they're just, they're just out of their minds. They're, those crazy women with their hysteria are just, just completely out of their minds. They went and they saw the empty tomb and they thought they saw angels saying he was alive. But of course, that can't be right. We had some men go over there and they saw the empty tomb, but no angels. Just the idea that the truth is going to come not only in ways you least expect it, but from people who you've dismissed, just as they almost did to Jesus right then and there, assuming he was a nobody who had never heard of anything. That in itself is part of the revelation. Yeah. And one of the things that's also really interesting to me about this story is Jesus calls them foolish. 
And then he starts Jesus explaining to them all of these things. That Jesus have is allowed to Jesus explain. I, I think no one that's else probably is. true. Yes, but. yes. But I would. But as you say, like I'm like, who the heck does this guy think he is? We've been following him, and he's just a complete stranger. But then the disciples do something that's totally like out of the blue for me. They keep walking with him, and then they say, "Hey, why don't you come in and stay with us for the night?" I would be like, get this guy away from me. He's annoying me. (laughs) But they end up showing him this radical hospitality Mm -hmm. to this stranger, which is the whole point of scripture. Absolutely. You know, it's like it's like in uh, the stories of I think it's Abraham and they're the three angels or three strangers that come to him. And uh, the message out of that is welcome strangers show hospitality to strangers because you may be showing hospitality to angels or maybe even to god and here are these these disciples in a moment they get it because here's this stranger and can you really trust him you've known him for a few hours and they take the risk of showing him hospitality and it shows that they were really listening so as much as I've criticized them up until now, of course, I've, I also said I don't think I could do any better and really couldn't because we can't do any better than to actually listen and let our hearts be opened even before we recognize it. I mean, they what they say is it's getting late. Stay with us. They don't say Wow, I never thought of it that way. You know, they don't they don't really address what he said, but just to welcome him in itself shows that their hearts are being opened. And their hearts were probably being opened all along the way throughout his whole life. All that stuff that they didn't recognize what was happening to them. So they still thought, oh, well, we're still going to go and we're still going to fight. And all along, they didn't recognize what was happening Um, It just takes a really, really, really long time for the seed of faith to break through the surface, you know? Absolutely. Yes. And what what do you make of it that their eyes are only opened to seeing Jesus among them in the breaking of the bread? Well, I'll just give a surface answer because I'm sure there's much more beneath the surface, but it's, it's just... It's an action that they have seen hundreds Mm. of times. It's the most recognizable thing in the world. It was the rhythm of their lives, I guess, on a weekly basis. And, you know, they probably really measured their lives by those suppers, by those communions together. He takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it. This was their pattern. And I guess to get back into something like normal after something, it's not normal. It'll never be normal again. But to just get back to something recognizable after your whole world has been upended, that can be the trigger that just clicks into place at that moment. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. One of the reasons that I love this story so much is because communion or the Lord's Supper or whatever your faith tradition happens to call it, is often seen as just a commemoration of the last supper that Jesus shares with his disciples. But here we see that the last supper that Jesus, what we typically call the last supper that Jesus shares with his disciples was not the last supper that Jesus shares with his disciples, because here he is 
sharing with some disciples a supper after what we call the Last Supper. So oftentimes communion has this kind of somber, oh, this is where we're commemorating the death of Jesus and isn't this sad and it kind of can have that ring to it. But mm-hmm. here we see that no communion happens in resurrection too. Communion yeah. is not just just a thing of death. It's a thing of life. It's a it, communion says that the death of Jesus does not have the last word, that our betrayal of one another and of Jesus does not have the last word, that here in the resurrection, Jesus still continues to commune with us over bread and wine. Yeah. That is really beautiful. And that's a wonderful, wonderful way to think about it. Death doesn't have the last word. And that's the beauty and power of resurrection. So whenever I do communion, which is generally once a month, uh, I always talk about um, the supper that Jesus shared before his death with his disciples. And I talk about this story, too the supper that Jesus shared after his death with his disciples. Cause I think it's just so important to not be so somber because there's good news in these meals that Jesus shares before his death and after his death. I mean, in the gospel of John, I think we're going to come up to this one maybe next week or in the next couple of weeks where Jesus is eating fish with his disciples, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> he continues to eat. There's something holy. There's something, there's something God like in sharing a meal with one another it's like it's as if jesus is saying in these in these passages there's no such thing as just a meal because wherever you are eating together i am present with you mm-hmm. and that means wherever people are gathered love is present and that's what it means there's no such thing as just a meal exactly as you put it because Love is always present. There's always an opportunity for joy and fellowship and human connection. I love that you do that. I love that you do that. I love that every communion you share, you talk about the before and after. And I'm going back, I'm thinking about what it means to interpret all of Scripture in that way and all of life in that way. All of everything in in that way, beginning with Moses and the prophets, you know, the disciples probably expected a Moses-type liberator figure, which Jesus was, but not in the way they were expecting. Mm -hmm. Because in the story of Moses, there is supposedly God's violence overpowering the violence of Pharaoh and his priests. But... There's also a story of being led through the Red Sea and the desert, through all the suffering that Jesus had to go through into liberation. So there's this sense of on the other side of the suffering, there is liberation, there is life, and we can't necessarily see it on our side until we go through it. I mean, just interpreting the story of Moses as going through the trouble from slavery into freedom, from death into life, there's still so much on the other side. 
There's so much on the other side of the Red Sea, on the other side of the desert, on the other side of the Last Supper. There's so much on the other side. There's so much we can't see when all the violence and suffering of our world is clouding our vision. There's there's so much that we just can't see, but it's still there. Oh, it's such a great point. Such a great point, because at the beginning of this passage, as we were talking about, the disciples are just kind of in despair. You know, they they say we, he was the one that we had hoped. We put all of our hope in this guy and now our hope is lost, it's dead along with him. And then as the story continues, they have this breaking of the bread moment and their eyes are opened and then they are at the other side of it. They're energized. And what do they do immediately? Immediately. I mean, it's night. It's dark, mm-hmm. probably. But immediately that very hour, it says they ran back to Jerusalem and told the other disciples about this experience. They're just so excited. It's adorable. Right? <laughs> That same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together, and they say, the Lord is risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. That means they went back seven miles, and without a car, that's quite a journey. You know, you you go through all the suffering and the pain, and then there's life on the other end, and you can go back to bring others into that life. Suddenly, the journey and all the suffering that you will probably go through again and again and again, it's still hard, but there's something giving you new energy and life to get through it on the other side. They get through it together in community. Yeah. And I think that's one of the most important things about the resurrection stories that we have. Like whenever you see resurrection paintings, it's always... It tends to be Jesus Mm -hmm. by himself resurrecting. But in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, Jesus is never isolated. The resurrected Jesus is never isolated from anyone else. There are always other people around him because it's a community event. It's as if like all of these stories are saying, listen, this isn't just about Jesus resurrecting. Mm -hmm. Because, Mm -hmm. I mean, as cool as that is, who cares if it has nothing to do with us? So Mm -hmm. this is always all of these stories are about Jesus resurrecting in order to bring people back into a sense of community, Mm -hmm. into a sense of you're not alone in this, in your despair. There is God walking with you in your despair. You're Mm -hmm. not alone in it. And there is, as you've been saying, another side to this. There is the other side. God is going to walk with you and we're going to walk together through it. Yeah. The whole interpretive key that Jesus opens to them when he, when they're on that road together and he opens up the scriptures. We've talked about this before. You've written about it. James Allison has written about it. That interpretive key is, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. On the one hand, when we think about receiving mercy, that's easy to do. That's that's I mean, maybe it's not so easy all the time. We could say a lot about the humility that that takes, but it's wonderful to receive mercy, but to give mercy to our enemies, that's hard because there's no certainty that when we reach out in mercy that we won't be utterly crushed. 
we can't see the other side of what that looks like. We might be able to see what the other side of sacrificing our enemies looks like because we can go on from there. But to be merciful to our enemies, it's hard to see the other side. You know, we might think if I forgive this person or if I put down my weapon that this person's just going to utterly destroy me. And it's hard to see that mercy can open up something so much better than the enmity that there was before. It's hard to see what could be on the other side of loving our enemies. And when I think about maybe what the disciples were going through, thinking that one day they would have to just utterly crush Rome in order to be free and not seeing that their enemies could one day be their friends. And there's so much joy and beauty beyond that, that I don't even know. I don't even know how to continue on from here because I can't see all the other sides. I don't see what life is like beyond war, beyond enmity, but I want to see it. And I think we've had glimpses of it since the beginning of time, particularly since the resurrection. I think the work of Jesus is continually opening us to greater forgiveness and greater mercy and greater community. The whole point is broadening the us to include everyone. So it makes total sense that Jesus doesn't rise alone because the whole point is expanding our vision and ourselves to embrace the whole world and maybe worlds beyond this one. We don't know because the work isn't done yet because we haven't reached the limits of mercy because mercy doesn't have any limits. So there. There's a whole universe out there of of love and friends to make on the other side of the crucifixion and on the other side of the resurrection. Amen to that. I think that's a great way to end this episode of Jesus Unmasked. So friends, I am Adam. And I'm Lindsay. And that's all from this episode. Jesus Unmasked is produced by the Raven Foundation, where we talk about faith and mimetic theory. Check out more of our work at ravenfoundation.org. You can connect with Raven on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this episode, feel free to share it with your friends or your enemies, because Jesus calls us to love them too.